Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Tantra's Mantra where we go behind and beyond the tech news headlines. I am Prakash Sangam, founder of Tantra Analyst and your host. Today's topic is CHIPS Act, which was recently passed by both the US Senate and the House of Representatives with bipartisan support. Uh, President Biden is expected to sign the bill into law on August 9, 2022. The passage of the bill, formerly known as Chips and Science Act, was not without usual drama and theatrics of Washington, D.C. Although the bill had good support on both sides of the aisle, the power dynamics in the Congress made some of the House Republican leaders to direct their constituents to oppose the bill. However, 17 Republicans broke their ranks and voted for the bill. This kind of shows the importance of the bill for for the country itself. The bill was culmination of the efforts of last several months. Uh, it came as a congressional response to the unprecedented global semiconductor supply shortage. As we all know, COVID pandemic and the demand surge right after that exposed the fault lines of the semiconductor supply chain. One of the main challenge was, and still is, of course, is the concentration of semiconductor manufacturing capacity, that's FABs, as they're called, in Asia, specifically Taiwan. The primary objective of this bill was to bring this capacity to onshore in the US by incentivizing companies, mainly through subsidies, to invest and set up fabs here in the US. When working on this, lawmakers realize that it's not just the fabs, but many other things are needed to address the challenge. So the bill went through many iterations and ended up as big as $250 billion, of which more than $50 billion are specifically earmarked for fabs. I will have a series of podcasts and articles on this subject, and we are starting today with discussing it with one of the experts in the semiconductor policy, who has spent many years in D.C. working for industry groups and companies, Mr. Falan Inig, Director of Economic Strategy at Qualcomm. If you remember, we did a podcast with uh, Fallon a couple of weeks ago discussing the chip supply shortage and how to address it. It was with a representative from Accenture as well. Fallon, welcome back to the show. Hey, Prakash, how are you? Um, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Very well. Fallon, as I mentioned, you have spent uh, tons of time in DC and worked on many aspects of tech policy. Could you please explain your background on the subject to our audience? Sure. Yeah. When I first started uh, working in D.C. for a federal agency called the U.S. International Trade Commission, I was hired back in 2000, gosh, 2003 uh, to be their semiconductor analyst. And, you know, that was about almost 20 years ago. And things have certainly changed since then. I know it's been very exciting to to witness uh, sort of the evolution of the growing recognition of the importance of semiconductors. Uh, the semiconductor industry in, in in the DC policy arena. I would just say that, you know, what has transpired uh, the passage of this formerly Chips and Science Act of 2022 in Congress last Friday should be viewed as a really historic event. Um, so again, a lot has changed, you know, worked for the government and I was with the Semiconductor Industry Association S3 in DC. And, you know, this really started back uh, a few years ago when I was with SIA uh, and trying to garner legislative support for for the industry and for building out the manufacturing and other components of the footprint uh, in the United States. Perfect. That's a great uh, start to our discussion. You you know how these things work. You know 
the semiconductor policy and so on <laughs> let's start with some basics so what is chips act at a very high level sure so um as you mentioned the the chips act or uh, chips and science act of 2022 formally known is basically a piece of legislation that's designed to incentivize a larger and more competitive semiconductor industry in the US mm-hmm. uh, starting back i think in 2020 and certainly into the spring of 2021 there was a re- recognition uh, that basically over time the US semiconductor industry or the US semiconductor footprint in the United States uh, had dwindled a bit according to a study by the Boston Consulting Group back in 1990 the US uh, accounted for basically uh, 37% of global semiconductor uh, manufacturing share in the world and that had basically sort of gone down to 12% in 2020 mm-hmm. and if nothing were to change um the estimate according to the report was that um the share of fab capacity in the US would um eventually uh, go to 10% oh. by 2030 so this was a you know certainly a concern uh given the importance of semiconductors both in terms of economic uh security and also i would even argue um uh, national security and certainly garnered the attention of policymakers uh again a few years ago and then of course on that there was the, the chip shortage um that we saw that was brought about by the global pandemic uh supply chains sort of not operating optimally uh and that even brought to a uh, starker relief the importance for having a a resilient and well-functioning global value chain for semiconductors. So this is this is an effort to try to improve both the manufacturing but also the competitiveness of the, the US semiconductor industry. Indeed with only 10 or 12% manufacturing is not a great uh, thing to have if you are looking to be recognized as a leader right in the tech industry as such. Yeah, as we talked about on our um previous podcast back in June, there are certain choke points and specialization in the global globally oriented semiconductor industry, but that comes with some some added risks and being sure that the global semiconductor industry can operate properly going forward and can address unanticipated shocks to to the market um is really important um given again how important semiconductors are and I think we we all recognize that, you know, given sort of the chip shortage that we all experienced uh, over the past uh Indeed as i mentioned in my monologue although the primary focus was on fabs and bringing them to us but it is much more than that right i mean what all it includes other than fabs no absolutely right so i think the big headline obviously that has gained a lot of attention um is the 52 billion dollars in the chips act itself as part of this legislation and the vast majority of that i would um as i understand 39 billion of the 52 billion is for grants to incentivize uh, front end fabrication and back end assembly test and packaging however um there are other parts of the uh chips act funding uh the chips act itself as well as others in the uh the full act um that um uh, help to focus on uh, and incentivize growth in other areas of the ecosystem so about 11 billion of the remaining 52 billion within the chips act itself is um helping to incentivize both the R&D side on prototyping R&D and also workforce development there's also a very um important provision a 1.5 billion dollars in ORAN funding to incentivize domestic build out of ORAN open RAN in the United States which also will be uh, administered by the um Department of Commerce and then finally another piece of the the final legislation is actually really important it's um added 170 
$70 billion in R&D and innovation funding of key programs at a number of federal agencies over the next five years. So this is funding that will go to places like the National Science Foundation, Department of Commerce, uh, National Institute of Science and Technology, NASA, Department of Energy. Um, it's author. It's authorized funding over the next five years. So it's um, you know it still needs to be uh, appropriated during those over the five years. But this is this is uh, a definite increase in that this vital what I would call pre-competitive basic research um, that helps to serve and incentivize added R and D within the semiconductor industry itself, um, working hand in hand. So you know clearly you know uh, you know as an R and D focused intensive company um, you know here at Qualcomm. You know, we would certainly intend to share our expertise to assist in these important new uh, federal programs by working with, for example, the Regional Technology and Innovation Hubs Program and new uh, National Science Foundation uh, Director for Technology Innovation and Partnerships to make these really be effective on the R&D side. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, sort of the major um, components of the full uh, legislation that was passed last Friday. It's a very nice overview. So it's not just fabs, but lot of other areas, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I give uh, policymakers in Congress a lot of credit. You know, they've uh, really understood and got educated about how the industry ecosystem works. As you and I both know, it's it's complicated, right? It, you know, it's a globally oriented industry where certain companies can focus on certain parts of the global value chain. But complicated it is, it's also that that important, uh, if that makes yeah. sense, um, in terms of its importance to, to our global economy, to, again, national security. And I think, you know, policymakers got that, you know, they, they got that message and that um, again, having been working, uh, you know, as an analyst, uh, you know, following the industry for a couple of decades now, um, it's uh, it's uh, it's really historic, and I, I give kudos to uh, to policymakers to addressing it. Indeed, indeed. So, okay, we we got the bill now. So, what's the next step? How do you see this? You know, large amount of money be dispersed. You know, make sure whatever the objectives are are met. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, the funding uh, for the CHIPS Act um, and also the the agency funding um, that I mentioned, um, as well as the ORAN funding, it's all going to happen over uh, the next five fiscal years. So 2022, 23, 24, 25, and 26 is sort of the, the timeline. Uh, the funding is front-loaded, if you will, um, about $19 billion, for example, of the 39 billion that will go to grants uh, for front-end fabrication and back-end assembly test um, manufacturing will be is scheduled to go out in the first year. And most of the programs, both on the manufacturing side, but also on the R&D side, workforce and education side, um, a lot of that will be um, administered by uh, the Department of Commerce, but there will be other agencies as well, um, Department of Defense, and, and as I mentioned, some of the other uh, agencies that work on uh, science and R&D uh, innovation, such as NSF and DOE, uh, NIST, uh, that will also be involved in administering uh, the funds. So front-loaded, hit, hitting, the, hitting the ground running, um, as you mentioned, you know, the president is scheduled to sign bill into law next Tuesday. You know, that's then attention will turn to the executive uh, uh, side branch of the government uh, in terms of having them start to to hit the ground running and provide the the funds. Yeah, it's a call for all the companies, the, the whole industry itself to have uh, their projects ready, uh, you know, almost shovel ready to, to get the funding and uh, hit the road uh, running, right, as you said. So, Absolutely, right. Mm-hmm. 
when uh, do you expect to see the benefits of this bill in real life i mean obviously industry will get funding it's good that it is front loaded so they can get access to this funding as soon as they can when as as a general audience be it industry or general audience when can we expect to see some of the benefits of this funding in real life mm-hmm. yeah no it's a very good question um you know you as you and i know uh, certainly on the manufacturing side um, you know, semiconductor fabs are, uh, are do take a, do take a while to to build. Um, on average, about eighteen to twenty four months or so, or, or, or almost two years, and then to, to ramp up some more uh, and an added uh, you know six months or to a year or so. Um, but I would imagine that they'll um, you know within the the, the first year um, we'll see manufacturing fab projects being announced. We'll see actual construction, and just keep in mind, you know, the the impact of of both the build out and the final permanent increased uh, footprint in in the United States, certainly on the manufacturing side, but also on the R and D side, will be um, significant. Um, there was a report actually that um, SIA had done with the Oxford Oxford Economics that looked at the economic impact of uh, federal uh, incentives and. Their modeling basically showed that a $50 billion federal investment program, which is basically what the CHIPS Act ended up being around, would basically add about 24, almost $25 billion annually uh, and would create an average of 185,000 temporary jobs. Um, that is jobs to help you know, the construction of these fabs, you know, construction workers and, and, and the such. And then um, separate from that, you know, then it would also add it would add to the ultimate um, footprint of of the the semiconductor industry in the U.S., which basically would result in ten at least ten additional fabs that would be built in the United States that would not otherwise be built, and almost over forty thousand new permanent semiconductor jobs uh, in the U.S. economy that that you would expect out of this funding, and that that would be over the long term, right? So the temporary jobs to help build out the new footprint, and then an addition of of about 42,000 jobs, uh, permanent jobs, to the current um, direct jobs workforce of about 277,000. So bringing that number up to, say, um, by the end of this five-year period, say by 2027, of basically 319,000 jobs. Um, So very, very um, impactful, I think, both in the short term, uh, and also in the long terms, in, in terms of uh, the, the economic benefits uh, in the United States. Most importantly, most of these jobs will be high tech, uh, high paying and skilled jobs, which I think is great as well, right? True. But I would say, you know, the, uh, the, the semiconductor, the U.S. semiconductor industry is, is unique uh, in that, yes, there obviously are very high skilled and, and high paying jobs, um, certainly you know, on the engineering side. But, you know, the study that I um, um, referenced from Oxford Economics did show that uh, compared to other manufacturing sectors, the, semi- the U.S. semiconductor industry actually employs, by comparison, a broader range of types of jobs. So, for example, I mentioned construction jobs. Um, you know, those will certainly be jobs available to uh, you know, sort of blue-collar workers uh, that, that, will, that will be needed, workers in, in the trades to, to, to build out the, 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 these, these actual um, major fabs. Also, to when the manufacturing facilities are built, uh, you know, a lot of the jobs within within the fabs are jobs that don't necessarily require a college education. Um, so there are a lot of, of a variety of types of jobs um, that building out the industry in the U.S. Um, will help to incentivize, um, broadly speaking. Very interesting. Very interesting. And uh, let me come to this, you know, billion or maybe two fifty billion dollar question. 
Will this bill help ease the semiconductor supply crunch that we are in today? Well, certainly, um, I would say broadly, yes. Immediately, uh, as I just mentioned, in terms of how long it takes to build out, you know, uh, build a fab, uh, not immediately. But uh, the more important question is the long-term mm-hmm. resiliency that will be added going forward in the U.S. So that the next time we do have an unanticipated shock to um, the industry like we've experienced over the last two years that have really thrown the whole global economy in a loop. Um, look at, again, I, I, you know, as Exhibit A, I would reference the, you know, auto chip, auto chip shortage. Um, and that's where I think it's really important to, to think really carefully on how this funding uh, is provided uh, and what is incentivized. And to that point, I would say there needs to be a focus. And if, if there's any lesson that has been learned over the last couple of years, there needs to be a focus on uh, on legacy node. Legacy node chips um, are are needed for all types of uh, end products, whether they're um, you know, super high techie gadgets or or not. Um, you just need so much, so many chips these days in an end product. I think the report that we that we talked about um, uh, back in June with Accenture estimated that you know your average cell phone has you know almost close to 200 uh, chips in them and cars these days again have about you know a thousand to three thousand chips in them a lot of those are legacy note and if you don't have that legacy note capacity then that's it, it then that restriction gates uh, you know it, it stops the ability of those end products to be made so even if it's a, a 50 cent piece uh, component that you need. Uh, if you don't have the whole suite of, of chips, then you're sort of out of luck in terms of a downstream customer uh, in terms of uh, of chips that are that are using to sell their their end products. So yes, extremely important to be sure that not just the cutting edge. Yes, the cutting edge is important. Legacy, uh, you know, cutting edge process node technology really important, obviously, but. Equally important is legacy node. Also, too, I would also just um, emphasize, you know, and I'm talking, you know, as a, as you know, as someone who works at a, a fabulous company, though, know, this is an opportunity to build out more foundry capacity and provide more options on the foundry side, right? Um, so, you know, most uh, the foundry capacity, just because of specialization, um, has basically been built out mainly in Asia, but um, having more options uh, for partnering uh, for foundry in other regions of the of the world will just help with that resiliency mm-hmm. issue and be sure that again when disruptions do happen um, that there'll be you know options for trying to be sure that the the market continues to operate smoothly right so again this is a great opportunity historic but it will be very important to to, to, to get it right in terms of being sure and I will say you know, it, it, you know, if there's one silver lining of what we've experienced over the last two years, plus with this chip shortage, it's been that we've been able to learn a lot uh, in terms of what is needed, um, where where we really do need to build up um, capacity and resiliency yeah. uh, for the next time that something like this happens. So I guess I guess I'm a bit of a bit of an optimist, but I guess there's always a silver lining in something. So. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things that you mentioned, a lot of in there. So first thing is about uh, where to prioritize for the spend, the latest node versus legacy nodes. I think that itself is a very long and interesting subject. We'll discuss that in detail in one of the future podcasts for sure. And the second one is you mentioned about resiliency and bringing capacity onshore. So, I mean, you know, some people might show this as, okay, we are bringing you know, manufacturing jobs and manufacturing sector as such into the U.S. But this is not that, right? We are bringing some capacity here and kind of bringing resiliency, not necessarily bringing the whole semiconductor manufacturing 
industry into us right so and, and even for that matter 250 billion is although it's a lot of money it's uh, peanuts if you want to bring the whole industry here right so some clarification on that aspect back would be interesting to hear yeah no to to i guess a couple pieces of, of that question i think i'd like to try to sort of unpack a bit but mm-hmm. yes i think you know in terms of the competitiveness uh, of the semiconductor industry and, you know, I think the industry or attracting the industry has been something that many foreign governments have prioritized. And it's an extremely competitive market for manufacturing semiconductors uh, where it's done. And I would actually argue that it's not particularly a free market uh, in terms of fab construction and where it's done. I mentioned the the SIABCG study that was done, uh, well, I guess it was in 2021, uh, two years ago, actually, uh, that looked at, you know, what is the cost to build a semiconductor uh, uh, fabrication facility? And it basically found that it costs basically 25 to 50% more to build a, uh, a manufacturing facility in the U.S. and about forty to seven percent of that differential uh, is due to government incentives that that are that are available um, that foreign governments uh, provide. So uh, the way I view the Chips Act um, funding is that it's it's first of all it's not the first time that the um, the U.S. government has engaged in uh, industrial policy for the semiconductor industry. Again, this was done in the 80s um, with Semitech and some of the other um, uh, policies that were put in place then. But it's certainly the right time, I would think, be given that uh, it's it's a globally competitive industry to where in terms of where fabs are built. And fabs are going to be built going forward uh, because the market is just going to be growing. And so it's really a question of where on the global uh, stage uh, these this added fab capacity um, will be will be built, and given the importance of semiconductors, both for uh, for our global economy to function, uh, and for even national security, I would argue having it be not concentrated in just one region or one area uh, is really important. And therefore, that's how I view these incentives as as an ability, as a way for um, the U.S. to finally sort of get into the get into the game that other governments have been. Um, in uh, uh, in terms of incentivizing manufacturing uh, and helping to get that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that 12% global fab share, that's uh, fab capacity share that's in the U.S. higher um, than uh, than than that going forward. The 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 piece of that that I would um, sort of emphasize. The second piece I think is again, what is the real intention of the Chips Act? Is it to bring you know the whole uh, the, the whole global industry back to the United States? I would say no. You know that's the, you know that's it's clearly you know not intended to do that. I think it's to build resiliency and redundancy in the global supply chain. But you know the industry for decades has been inherently global uh, and globally oriented, and consumers uh, ha- and the industry has benefited from that global orientation of the industry. It's just that uh, I would say um, there has been again, uh, as I'm as we talked about um, when we discussed the Accenture report, extreme specialization where there are actually choke points in the global value chain where there's reliance on maybe one or two companies uh, um, through specialization or a certain country that dominates a particular piece of the uh, of the ecosystem where there's just a lot of risk in having that uh, having that sort of uh, global system operating so no it's not it's certainly not to, to bring it all back to the United States nor should it be conceived uh, thought of that way um, I think it's again to to help build the, that resiliency and redundancy to be sure that the global supply chain global value chain operates smoothly going forward and 
to help um, ensure, uh, and certainly in certain, some of the R&D and workforce provisions that the U.S. semiconductor industry is doing what it needs to do to maintain its leadership. Yeah, very well. So I think uh, you kind of also answered the criticisms that some might have is that, you know, the tech industry and some industry in particular is in really good shape. It's prosperous, you know, lots of revenue, lots of profit. Why government need to support this such industry through incentives and so on. But uh, it's a global marketplace. I know if U.S. companies have to compete with others in the market who are being supported by their own government. So, you know, there is a good reason. And uh, in fact, national security and national technology leadership question in terms of, uh, you know, providing these incentives to the industry to maintain uh, U.S. leadership in technology, right? Yeah. And, you know, semiconductors are a unique product, right? They are... Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard very, you know, various cliches, um, sort of to the point to this, to this sort of idea that you know they're sort of the the oil of the information age, right? You know, the world sure. operates on semiconductors. It's, it's the foundational. It's a foundational technology that um, provides the hardware that that so many other downstream industries uh, need to operate. And again, we've we sort of saw we've seen that. Um, over the past couple of years play out. And I think a lot of people, you know, who, who didn't know um, the importance of semiconductors because again, a lot of them are sort of inside products, right? And you can't see them. You don't go and buy, you know, a six pack of semiconductors at Best Buy or, you know, like your, your big box store. You just, you buy a lot of products that, that actually, you know, you're actually buying semiconductors. You don't realize it, yeah. right? Um, again, the, the Oxford economic study that I um, had alluded to, they um, found that there are more than 300 downstream economic sectors in the United States that now have semiconductors as a critical input in them, right? That accounts for over 25 million U.S. workers who work in those downstream economic sectors, uh, those 300 downstream economic sectors. So yes, it's a, um, you know, for a number of reasons, you know, it's it's an industry that is unique. It's, I would, and I would argue that it's uniquely important and, and will continue to be uniquely important going forward in terms of how our world works. Our world is just more connected. It's more electronic and, uh, and anything that's connected and anything that's electronic has a semiconductor has a chip in it um, that is make, uh, that that is powering that um, that is enabling that uh, function. Uh, indeed, indeed, it's fascinating uh, industry to be in for sure. Absolutely, yeah. It's my last question. We are almost coming to the end of the show. So, if we were to meet here again, right, say one year from now on same podcast and discussing this. Where do you think we will be? What are the things that we'll be discussing? What will be things that we'll be, you know, looking at and so on? Oh, yeah, no, that's a, a great question, Prakash. And first of all, again, thank you for for um, uh, for having me on uh, to discuss this um, timely uh, passage of the CHIPS Act. So I would say, you know, in about a year, we should see, you know, within the year, you know, fab uh, projects in the United States being announced. I would even say construction underway jobs created, you know, certainly uh, temporarily jobs created, a lot of activity among agencies to uh, that have received the uh, funding, a, a very busy executive uh, branch, therefore, hopefully working closely um, and ga gathering input from the industry uh, and other important stakeholders to figure out how best and most effectively 
uh, to implement this, these programs. Again, this is, this is historic and this is sort of unprecedented. And for that reason, I think it will take all stakeholders. And I think the U.S., you know, the government agencies, I think are, would be receptive to that and, and, and welcome that, um, that uh, cooperation. I would also say that I think um, continued focus on the industry and the long-term competitiveness of the U.S. American industry um, shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, needs need, needs to continue to be um, a focus uh, of policymakers and the industry. You know, I would say that the the chips uh, the chips act is a very very good start, but it should be considered a start. You know, it's historic legislative achievement, but again, it's a very competitive landscape. Other governments uh, of the uh, in other countries are you know, are looking long-term here. Um, and again, we we are the the current uh, industry leader in terms of innovation and mark and, and sales market share. Um, but we need to continue to keep our eye on the ball and focus not just on building resilience uh, in the global value chain, which I will say that this CHIPS Act goes a long way to do, but also figure out ways to maintain U.S. industry um, innovation and market share leadership, because you know it's um, it's a it's a very competitive industry and again a very important industry uh, for our world. So I would just say I'll leave you with this: you know, while semiconductors you know were invented in the U.S. and you know Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley for that very reason, um, you know industry leadership is is certainly not a birthright, and we must continue to focus on innovating uh, and leading the industry in the future. Excellent, Falan. Always enjoyed discussing these things with you. Thank you very much for uh, coming over. Since we are only at the beginning of this uh, journey and there's a long way to go. And as you said, it's just uh, the first step. I'm sure I'll have you on my show many more times discussing uh, these things and how the implementation of uh, CHIPS Act is happening. And, and even before that, you know, what are the different aspects of the act itself? You only looked at a very high level uh, point of view, right? So thank you again. Yeah. Well, Prakash, it's always a pleasure. And again, we'll be happy to uh, to talk with you whenever you like. And I think, again, this is a very exciting time to be in the industry and to see how these uh, historic developments play out. Very well. So folks, that's all for now. Hope you found the discussion informative and useful. As I had mentioned earlier, this is the first in a series of podcasts and articles that I'll be doing on the subject. So I'll be back very soon with another episode, putting more light on this as well as other interesting tech subjects. Bye bye for now.